Hello and a warm welcome to the Scots and Us podcast from the American Scottish Foundation. My name is Jamie McGeehan and I'm so glad you can join us for this episode which we have called Whiskey Spotlight. Join us in conversation as we spotlight Scotland's leading export, whiskey. We are joined by three leading representatives from the whiskey sector in Scotland who join us for a fascinating insight into their organisations and their passion for whiskey. Camilla Hellman, President of the American Scottish Foundation, is joined in conversation with our guests on the podcast and I'm delighted to introduce our first guest. Drew Mackenzie-Smith is Managing Director of Lindor's Abbey Distillery, the spiritual home of whisky, where whisky was first distilled on the site over 500 years ago. Good morning, Drew. Um, it's a wonderful day, you tell me, in Scotland. It is. The sun is always shining in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have you know. <laughs> it's it's a the picture behind me is is false. It's obviously a picture of the distillery, but the the sun is actually is out. As you can see, it's coming through the window on my shiny head. So, um, Drew, I'm so glad that we have this chance to talk to you. We've been um, at the American Scottish Foundation. We've been watching the progress of the Abbey. For the last few years, you've very kindly been in uh, contact with us and worked with us with the Aquavita. Um, and now there is so much that is beginning to happen with the first edition of the whiskey that's coming out. But let's go back a bit. Mm -hmm. um, you have an incredible history at Lindor's. Um, it's called the Spiritual Home of Whiskey. Could you tell us a little bit about the early days, how this all came together? And where we are now? Yes, well, it, it's it, it's a it's a it's a lucky story, I suppose, is 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 the honest way of saying it. So my my great grandfather John Howison bought Lindor's Abbey Farm in 1913, and it is it's not a big. He farmed a far bigger area, but Lindor's was added to that area, and it was. 98 acres so for a farm that's not really very big and in in the middle of it are the remains of Lindor's Abbey which is a nice thing to have but that was really all it was and he kept his some cattle in it I've got to confess when I was a, a kid we used to ride horses even motorbikes around in it so it was a lovely back garden but that we didn't really think any more of it if I'm honest and then about now 20 years ago we, um, I wasn't living here at the time. My father was here and he phoned up one day and he said, gosh, you know, I had a, a chap came to the door, slightly disheveled, but a very charming chap. And he asked if he could walk around the Abbey ruins. And, and father thought, well, that's fine. N knock yourself out. I thought it was slightly strange. No one had really asked to do that before, but he said, no, that's fine. And then about six months later, this lovely hardback book arrived in the post and it's called Scotland and its whiskies and the chap turned out to be Michael Jackson who what sadly he's passed away but he was a leading whiskey and beer writer of, of his day and it said dear Ken thank you very much turn to page 70 and on page 70 there's a lovely photograph of, of the Abbey ruins and it says for the whiskey lover it is a pilgrimage and then it went on to say that he wandered around at the Abbey ruins saying a silent prayer of thanks to Friar John Cor, um, who I've got to admit at that point, none of us, none of the family, I think the whiskey world all knew this, but we, we weren't a whiskey family. 
And really what that was doing was cementing Lindor's Abbey as this spiritual home. And, and the reason for that is when I, I say Friar John Corr, in the whiskey world, he's, he's sort of legendary in that in 1494, there's an entry in the Exchequer Roll, which is like the, it's the king's tax record of, of that particular year. And I've had the privilege of seeing it. It's, it's in Edinburgh and you get special permission. It's a 30 yard long scroll in Latin and some very clever person. And we've never, I don't know if anyone knows who, who this clever person was, but I, you know, I owe them a great debt, debt of gratitude because buried in amongst all these transactions is to Friar John Corr, eight bowls of malt wherewith to make aqua vitae for the king. And that is the earliest written reference to the production of whiskey in Scotland. And the industry celebrated their 500th anniversary in 1994, kind of cementing it as, as the earliest written reference. So when I found that out, I thought, well, that's too big a, it's too big a, a deal not to try and do something about it. And it's funny looking back on it now. So this was in as you can imagine, even the slightly early days of, of emails and the internet. And I thought, well, I'll send a message out to, I'll look if there's any whiskey societies and say, gosh, you know, I've just found this great news and I would maybe like to try and build a, a shed, literally just a shed that people can come and look at the Abbey. And I sent it and alphabetically, the, the top list of the list was a, whiskey society in Canada called Anne Quake. And I sent it and didn't really think much more of it, if I'm honest. And then the next morning I opened up my emails and there was this great long email from this whiskey society. The most excited thing they'd ever heard. It was the biggest news in whiskey and they'd set the hills alight and all sorts of stuff. And I, that's really what kick-started me. But I did realize that, of course, when the, because of the time difference, when they typed this email, they'd, they'd maybe had a few drams themselves because it was so effusive. Uh, but it, to me, that's what gave me the the kind of idea to take the story onwards. And, and I did. And, and Helen, my wife and I really sort of tried to make something happen at Lindor's. But 20 years ago, the, the whiskey world was slightly in the doldrums. So raising the money, we had great vocal support. But obviously any project, even building a shed, takes some um, takes quite a bit of funding. So after a few years, it, I, I kind of wound it down. And then thought, well, it was a nice story. We still have the Abbey. It's still a nice thing to happen, but it's not really the what I hoped it would be. And then about six or seven years ago, a phone call out of the blue from a friend in the industry said, well, come on, Drew, there's there's distilleries opening up all over the place and, and the one place there should be in in his opinion was was Lindor's Abbey and so we kind of thought well you know carpe diem you know seize the day make it happen and and really that is kind of what happened the whiskey industry is in a better place you know it didn't happen overnight but here we are now sitting at, right next to the distillery with our aqua vitae on sale ar around the world and very importantly is our whiskey coming on the market in a, about a month and a half's time so that's the end of that chapter if you like of the story but the beginning of the next
but it's very um you the big crux to this is that it takes seven years to wait for a whiskey production to occur which is you know tough and um for any uh distillery trying to come on board and you fortunately you know you weren't building completely you know you had this market marketing tool almost mm, already mm. there and you had this beautiful abbey yes uh, ruin and everything else but you could then develop this whole project around it so yes. but it is a seven-year wait which well, is it, well it's, 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 it's 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 technically three year three years of a day all right it's three years because the Scotch Whiskey Association has has quite strict rules, if you like, quite a, for very good reasons. So, when we make the spirit, so the spirit comes off the still, it has to sit in a wooden cask in a warehouse in Scotland for for three years, and actually three years and one day to right. allow to allow for um, leap years. Which is so hence because people always wonder why is there this one day, but you're but you're 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 exactly right, and and that's the challenge for any distillery, is that that's a very expensive business because you for so for three years in a day, you are producing something that you can't sell. So when I was initially going to an investor and say, well, can you lend me all this money? But by the way, I should tell you, we can't sell anything for a long time, which is why a lot of them, in fact. Almost every new distiller I can think of brought out a gin because gin you can distill to make today, sell tomorrow. And I'm not, I, I'm not against. I like, I like gin. I like a good gin and tonic. But is a, and there's still a huge boom. And if I if I talk to my bank manager, I'm sure he thinks we should have done a gin, and he's, he's probably right. But I, I I had to stick to my guns because my thought from the very beginning was if if our usp is friar john call the spiritual home of scotch whiskey if the first liquid if you like that came from lindors was a gin people might think well hang on the, the monks didn't make gin so, so your story all along has been very much your core sto historical story yes. of heritage exactly and i think that's br brought you out from all the explosion of small uh, distilleries and yeah. keeps you really, as Lindsor is really, it stands out and has, people know it now as a spiritual home. Yes. Yeah, and, and we were very keen to stick, stick to our guns on that. As I say, financially, it would have been easier to take a different route, but, but it's not all about money. We felt, you know, we, we're a business. And we we when we have our whiskey out, then fair enough, we're back. We're in with the with the big boys. But no, I was adamant from day one that our core prospect, when when you read it, is Friar Core created Aqua Vitae, which is the water of life, which became Uskabar, which became whiskey. So it was the very origins of whiskey. But Aqua Vitae is. The same spirit is barley, is distilled barley spirit. But what the monks did, so our monks came from France and they brought these skills with them, is they had this distilled spirit, which they then infused with plants that grew around the monastery. And I think, to be perfectly honest, it was initially 
very much um, for medicinal reasons. You know, it was for curing apes <laughs> and pains. My, my pet theory, especially in this part of Scotland, is that you get five people in a room, be they monks or not, and there's something that smells quite powerful. One of them tried drinking it, and then his more enlightened friends probably said, well, okay, if we're going to drink it, let's try and make it taste nice. So in, in a way, that's exactly what we did. You know, several hundred years later, we said, well, okay, let's, what is aquavitae, which is what I just described. And we thought, well, let's try and stick as much as we can to the original theory that what the monks did. So we set about taking various plants from, from the abbey. And my previous life, I was a chef, so I could help with some of this. But the reality was quite soon upon us. I mean, the plant that grows mostly around the abbey is wild garlic. So if you want to make soup or pesto, there's lots of lovely things you make with wild garlic, but not, not a spirit drink, that's for sure. <laughs> so there was quite a lot of trial and error. And eventually, and, and meanwhile, we would, it wasn't just us kind of on our own in an amateur way. We enlisted the help of uh, Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh has a department of brewing and distilling. And it's, I think it's arguably that the leading university in the world for that particular thing, and it, and it should be for distilling, given we're in Scotland. So we got some of the PhD students to help us in our, in our project. And, you know, to cut a long story short, we abandoned some plants and herbs, etc. And we have a plant that still grows in the Abbey right now called Sweet Sicily, which is slightly aniseedy. So that's one of the plants. So we forage at this time of year is when these things grow. And also a kind of weed called clavers that most Scottish people would remember as Sticky Willy, just grows, grows everywhere. So that was another product we could use. So we, we came at it in a sort of scientific way. It was a lovely story, very scientific. The problem was, it, it, if I'm being really honest, it still didn't taste that great. And whatever the history behind it is, it's got to taste nice. So then we started working with some of the kind of the cool bartenders, mixologists actually, as they're called now, in Edinburgh, um, a super restaurant called Timber Yard, Joe Radford, that, is the son of the owner. He's very, very clever with these flavors. And the really where it was falling short, we needed to make it a little bit sweeter. We weren't making we weren't making a sweet liqueur, but we we needed to take away the harshness. So what we started doing is working with dates and raisins. And the reason we could do that is the monks trade because we wanted again to keep the story as, as tight as we could. And we know that the monks of Lindors traded with Flanders in Europe because we've got great little, I, I've, there's four history books about Lindors Abbey. And I'm pretty sure I'm the only person that's read all four of them, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, and lots of them are in Latin. And I wasn't very good at Latin at school, but I've managed to cobble some of it together. So there's all these trade entries. So for instance, there's a, there's a lovely little entry that says, to Flanders, eight barrels of salmon, two thrown overboard because they were rotten. So, so even then there was trade going on. I mean, it's a, it's a different discussion because I have used it a few times that our French monks 
we're living in Scotland and trading with Europe. And of course, now we've just come out of Europe, but that's, that's a different conversation. <laughs> but the fact they were trading salmon for things they couldn't get in Scotland. So we know they had access to dates and raisins. So we used them to slightly sweeten the aquavitae to, to just, it, it's made, I think, a really, really lovely drink. The other thing the dates did, which we hadn't planned, is they made it, because obviously New Makespirit is a clear like water, but the dates made it amber like whiskey. So it kind of helps people think of it as a sort of prototype whiskey. So yeah, it was a, a challenge because of course, what we've also done, which was either clever or not clever, and only time will tell in a sense, is we've, we've created a category of its own. So if we were going to a chain of pubs and saying, well, will you take our product? They can say, well, we've got gins, we've got vodkas, or we've got the slightly weird stuff in the corner. And that's, we're trying to kind of move it from there. So that's the, that's the negative. Uh, the positive is in all these international drinks competitions, they're categorized and we're still the only Aquavitae. So we, we kind of win, we come, we come first and last in every, <laughs> in every category. So, and I think I prefer the glasses half full, so we'll say that. <laughs> so at this point, um, you have the whiskey coming online in, in a few weeks time. Yeah. And how many bottles will there be in this first reserve? Well, well quite a lot for, for a small distiller like us. We, we're trying to, I suppose we're trying to be all things to all people because what a lot of new distilleries do, and I actually understand why, they make their very first bottle very, very expensive and sell it to keep it limited. So it's like a kind of collector's item. Um, but we decided not to do that. So we, we have a commemorative bottling, but which we're going to have 12 and a half thousand. So it's quite a lot, but it's not numbered and it will be competitively priced as well. So we're not just, we're not just trying to get collectors to buy it because uh, what happens sadly is there's, there's two types of people that, that buy whiskey bottles. There's people that buy it to drink because they like whiskey and they appreciate what's gone into it or and it might, you know, it might upset some people, but there's other people that buy it purely so they can, they can buy a limited edition and then sell it for twice as much two days later. And sometimes way more than twice as much. And we personally, I, I don't really like that because there's so much passion and hard work's gone into making that product. It, it seems a bit harsh that that's what happens, but I'm also not naive you know that's, that's the way the world works and if if people can do that and they can double their money i can see their thinking so that's why we're, we're bringing out twelve thousand of these bottles so they i think will be more people just drinking them so drew are you distributing this yourselves or are you partnering with someone else and how wide will the distribution be well on a, on a local in the uk what we're planning to do when we do the release. And I, I think this hasn't been done before, that we personally, the team, we're going to hire a number of vehicles so we can personally deliver to it. Because all the small shops who've struggled through COVID 
have and, and been closed for most of it. So and they've stood by us. So we thought, well, rather than just get a big distributor to take them around, we'll we'll do it personally, uh, which again seems like a good idea right now. It might. <laughs> <laughs> You'll do it, but it'll be it'll be an interesting logistical challenge. Um, so that's for the UK, but wider afield, we're just we've just announced our distributor in Germany, and we're really pleased that we're we're beyond the kind of conversation stage. We're about to announce our distributors in Canada, the States, all across oh. Europe, Japan, China, you you name Russia. So from this little acorn of a, of a place, I think that the, the whiskey will really properly put Lindor's on the map. I mean, I'm, I said, when I said earlier we had 12,000 of the commemorative bottles, we've got about 35,000 of the core range, which will actually be, again, to try and make it accessible, the spirit in both bottles. We're very transparent. The spirit is exactly the same. One label is a bit fancier, but that's it. Because we're trying to say to people, look, buy it to drink and, and enjoy. And if you enjoy it, great. When we have another release, you'll you'll know it's a nice whiskey rather than just one that looks nice on the, on the shelf. You have an annual. Is this now rolling into an annual release? Yes. Yeah. We'll we'll have. Along the road, we'll have special releases, like you know, we've obviously watched lots of other um, whiskey distilleries and how they operate. And there's there's some, you know, we'll never be a Diageo that has ten million bottles, etc. But having said that, you can learn from them as well. But more of the distilleries of a similar size who bring out special releases. So we've got quite a few nice things we can do. One of the nicest things, which has, has a, again, very fortunately, has a kind of nice ending to it. So our monks were from Tiron in France, which is a, a tiny wee village about 50 miles south of Paris. Um, it's quite sweet because France has something like 30,000 mayors, as in mayors of a town, but only 25,000 towns. They've got more mayors than towns. That's the kind of way France works. But the mayor of Tiron is a really super chap called Victor, and he's been across to Lindor's, a bit like a sort of cultural exchange, and we've been to Tiron, had a lovely time there. And what we thought we would do is get some oak from Tiron to make some casks to hold the whiskey in. And we thought it's, it's a lovely story, it's a lovely thing, it gives us an excuse to go back to France, so it ticks all the boxes, but... I wasn't sure, no one really knew, because not all wood works with whiskey spirit. You know, it, it forms a barrel and it'll keep the, the whiskey in, but it could have gone either way. But very fortunately, it's actually created a fantastic whiskey at a very young age. So certainly one of these special releases will be this Tiron aged whiskey that again harks all the way back 500 years and as a knock-on from that because it's because it's been so nice we're now make, making more casks so in return for that we're planting trees over in Tiron so again we talk about sustainability and the, and the cycle of of life if you like so we really we, we love this kind of relationship with with Tiron and France not just because I like visiting it 
and people can now visit you too. Yeah. You've mm. always, throughout this whole process, um, as we watched the evolution, you've been, um, you, I didn't know you were a chef before, but you were hosting weddings and special mm. events. And I noted some great um, celebration dinners that you were doing. Mm. Um, so are you growing upon that? Is that going to remain an, an important part of people can visit, they can enjoy the distillery or hold events there? Yeah, no, very much. We're, we're, we're hugely lucky to have, obviously, the distillery was built on our old farm steading around the courtyard of the steading. So we have a number of different spaces we can use for these events, as well as obviously the Abbey ruins themselves. So we have, I mean, just um, last Friday, we had a wedding in the Abbey ruins. Sadly, for, for, the, for the couple, it started pouring with rain. So we were lucky enough to then move them into our lovely wooden barn. Um, and then from the wooden barn, they came into the distillery. So we've got all these different things. And that's certainly something that will continue. One of the things that happened during um, lockdown was these, and I presume it's the same over in the States, but a, a thing that came out of nowhere, if you like, was these called micro weddings. So whereas normally these weddings would be hundreds of people guests they would only be limited to 15 it's gone up to 30 and so we had a number of those booked in and sadly when it got to the point that nothing could happen we postponed we postponed them so some places were cancelling them which we thought was really a shame for the for the couple who are getting married so we honored all all the things but i my prediction is that these micro weddings will continue because it's actually obviously it's far far cheaper and and with house prices and everything at the moment for a young couple you think that's maybe not such a bad thing but i think also there's a slight element of it means you're not forced to invite all the old relatives that maybe argue and you know if all families are the same so i think some young couples are thinking well, let's quickly get married before lockdown eases so we've had lots of weddings we have a lovely long table where we can seat 80 people for banquets a lovely long wooden table carved yep. out of a single oak tree so no we we definitely will be doing more of that i mean when i was a chef helen when i spoke about the gap from first finding out the history of lindors to five years ago we were very fortunate to have kind of stumbled into a career it was it wasn't, it wasn't planned in any way of running super luxury properties in the uk and i was the chef i I stumbled into being a chef. I was very lucky. I trained under a chap called Stephen Doherty, who was the head chef of the Gavroche, and I had three Michelin stars. So I didn't go to college. I, I did it the, the hard way, the, the, in a way you could argue the, the proper way. And meanwhile, Helen, whose background was actually classic cars, ended up running beautiful properties down in England and then in Scotland as, as a manageress. So those skills are now transferred to Lindor's more, more in Helen's case than mine. I mean, I still, I still sometimes make the soup, but I, yeah, I leave the sort of proper chefing to the younger, younger ones now, but no, so we're lucky. So we can put these events on at a very high level. Um, and we've enjoyed a lot of visits. We, we do normal tours, but we also started a kind of special tour and we've had a number of actually, more often than not, Americans joining us for there, where it's maybe just a couple of people 
I'll spend a few hours with them in the distillery. Then we'll have lunch together in, in our house, which is next to the distillery. And that's that's one of the things I enjoy the most because you, it's not just a whiskey tour. You really get to know the people that, you know, they get to know everything about me and this story. I get to know a lot about them. So it's great fun. And, you know, I get a slap up lunch as well. So, But, but you love the Abbey. You love Lindor's. And I do. I do. This comes across. You are a great raconteur, but you you know it's that passion. None of this can ever happen as an no. entrepreneur if you don't have that passion. Uh, absolutely right. I mean, yes. I mean, it has. It's been a. Uh, it's it's, a, it's an overused thing, sort of saying journey, but it really has been a journey. And I think where I is, which is, I have great advisors, and because I suppose my one of my many weaknesses, of course, my focus to a certain extent is the Abbey rather than rather than spreadsheets and stuff that isn't quite so interesting. But a great spin-off. Well, when I first set this whole ball rolling, and we have a membership now called the 1494, and, and funds come from that to, to literally physically preserve the Abbey because it is several hundred years old it's a very beautiful ruin but it but it does need tlc which as you can imagine is doesn't come cheaply because you have to jump through a lot of hoops to do it but it, but one of the things you know i'll be delighted that we've created a distiller I'm delighted when the whiskey comes out and it wins awards and people like it but i'll i'll equally be delighted when we start genuinely start the work on preserving it which and some of that's very physical it's, it's you can't just get cement and put it into the walls because they're 800 years old and the original cement is there and it's made of oyster shells etc so we'll recreate that so if on my watch we've done that bit and we preserved it well then we think well you know what we've done something quite good well i'm i'm so glad we've managed to talk to you today um i hope that you'll be in touch with us soon and tell us where we're going to be able to get our whiskey, Lindor's Abbey whiskey in the States. This deal sounds very mm. imminent and we're excited yes. to learn more. And um, thank you so much for telling us all about the journey to so far. It's a pleasure, it really is a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to Drew McKenzie-Smith for joining us in conversation as we learned all about the fascinating history of Lindor's Abbey Distillery and its incredible journey as Drew and his team get set to market the first whisky produced on the site of Lindor's Abbey in over 500 years. An incredible story and we look forward to sharing more in the future. You can visit the Lindor's Abbey Distillery on their website, lindorsabbeydistillery.com. And now we're joining conversation with Martin Green, head of the whiskey department at Bonhams, as we learn all about Bonhams' upcoming whiskey sale on June 1st and hear about some of the amazing whiskies up for auction. We go now to that conversation. Good afternoon, Martin. I'm so glad we've managed to find a moment to catch up with you before the sale next week. Um, which is one of four, in fact, that um, Bonhams Edinburgh conduct, um, whiskey sales that Bonhams Edinburgh conducts, isn't it? Yes, that's right, yes. Do you tell us a little bit more about your whiskey auctions and what goes into the preparation for such 
wonderful events? Um, I think firstly and foremostly, we source really from all over the globe for these sales. Um, obviously, a lot of the stock comes from um, existing clients and collectors and people who are very new to the market. Um, it could be someone who has inherited something um, that really doesn't want to keep it. Um, it could be a collector who's thinning out their collection and wants to invest the money in another area um, or wants indeed to invest the money into other whiskies. Um, but Bonhams has a huge network of offices all over the country, all over the UK and all over the world. In fact, all over America too. Um, and sometimes our colleagues there will pass on inquiries to us. So Martin, this is a very varied sale. I mean, there are some whiskies that go back over 60 years and uh, are quite um, have a, quite a high a price against them. And then there are some that are less expensive. And you have had some amazing records in recent years as well. But could you tell us about some of the highlights of the whiskies coming up next week? Okay, um, well, as usual, we have um, a very good representation of Macallan. Uh, we have a bottle from 1938. There's a bottle from 1950, um, some from the sort of mid to late 1950s. We have a very good selection of Bowmore uh, going back to, I think, 1955 is the um, earliest Bowmore we have in the sale. Um, and one of my little favourites is a bottle of 1924 Canadian Club, which has the um, actual uh, bottling year printed on the labelling, which for, you know, whiskies that are more associated with everyday drinking, if you like, um, to have something that dates back to that period is, is, is quite fun. It's one of my favourites in the sale, although it isn't the most expensive at about six to eight hundred pounds, so that that's quite a nice thing. But you know, the nineteen thirty eight Macallan I mentioned is going to sell for sort of ten fifteen thousand pounds. And some of the whiskies that um, you have, you know, as you say, are from six hundred pounds um, indicator up. And so there are things for everybody to be able to be thinking of, um, you know, that for somebody who may be looking for a really unique gift or to start their whiskey uh, collection and um, improve their cellar. Um, but when you saw these um, Macallans from the 1926 that sold yes. in 2018 and 2019, that went for several hundred thousand pounds, did you expect them to go for that when they came, when you saw them arrive? Well, there had already been a benchmark set. Um, these Macallans hadn't been on the market for quite a long time, actually. Um, and there were two of them that were sold in a retail outlet, Le Clos in Dubai Airport. That prompted various other owners to, to put forward um, six-year-old whiskies, one with a label designed by Valerio Adami and the other one designed by Peter Blake of Beatles cover fame. Oh. Um, so, you know, the, these two had sold at Bonhams in Hong Kong um, and there was a sort of benchmark set at that point. And then we were consigned uh, the six-year-old Adami that we sold in uh, 2018 simply because it was actually a collector who was known to me 
Um, and because these whiskies hadn't been on the market, when he realized just how much money he was sitting on in his own home, <laughs> he said, please come and take it away. I can't take the risk. Um, and that is really how we came to, to be selling it. But um, with the Bowmore uh, that you have coming up, it's a 1964. Yes. Um, that has an indication of £45,000. Um, does that to you look like it may surprise? What it, are you, or do you think you, these are more the indications in the mid five figures? Um, well, there are three bottles in the lot. So there are um, three 1964 Black Bowmores um, bottled in 93, 1994, and 1995. So they're 29, 30, and 31 years old, I think. Um, they've been sold before. It's not often that you will actually see them as a set. Um, and so the price range that, that we've given is actually quite conservative for a set of three. So hopefully those will do quite well and find a new home. Um, and it, it, you have a wonderful online catalogue and it is very um, straightforward to register to bid and yes. to be a part of the sale. Um, and so we're put that up at the end of this conversation. And you then will be doing another sale in, um, is it October? We have a sale in October and uh, the pre-Christmas sale on the 7th of December also. So, the, and you will, um, if somebody has those wonderful things in their cellar that they've just realized that they have a Macallan from the twenties uh, or whatever, they should be in touch with you. Be delighted to help. You know, e even things which, Sometimes with whiskey, those things that seem as though they may not be very special can often turn out to be. Um, the collector's market for whiskey is very varied. So, you know, we're always happy to look at um, inquiries um, and, you know, see, see what something is worth for someone. And also the labelling is such an interesting aspect that you brought up. Yes, well, it can be. And, you know, every distiller um, over a period of decades changes labelling, um, changes the livery of how bottles are presented and all of these things add to the value, you know, and sometimes the, the older bottlings that you cannot buy at retail will only come up at auction. Um, so, you know, it's all, all very interesting. And as you said earlier, you know, the, the less expensive bottles now, it's impossible to predict what they'll be worth in the future. Um, but there are certain brands that, you know, you very rarely lose money on. Um, this is wonderful. I, I really do hope we can pick up this conversation in the fall. Um, and absolutely. And, um, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. And um, I, we're here ready to pass on information for anybody that doesn't grab it right away. And um, we look forward to speaking with you again soon, Martin. Thank you so much. You're welcome and thank you for having me. Thank you, Martin Green, Head of the Whiskey Department at Bonhams, for sharing insight into the upcoming whiskey sale on June 1st and sharing with us all about those wonderful whiskies up for auction. For more information about how you can participate in the auction and other upcoming auctions from Bonhams, please visit their website at bonhams.com. 
and now we're joined by Jack Dalton from the Edinburgh Whiskey Academy as we learn all about the whiskey classes available through the Academy which offer accredited courses for us to develop our knowledge of whiskey and we hear about the wonderful locations which the courses are delivered in such as the beautiful Arniston House. We go now to that conversation with Jack Dalton and Camilla Hillman, President of the American Scottish Foundation. Good morning, Jack. Um, well, it's good afternoon with you, but good <laughs> in Edinburgh. Um, I'm glad that we're having a chance to catch up with you and learn about the Edinburgh Whiskey Academy. Yes, uh, good morning. Well, good evening, like you say, for me <laughs> over here. Um, no, thank you very much for, for having, uh, having me on. Uh, great to be able to just um, you know, talk a little bit about what we do and uh, hopefully um, there'll be some of your listeners out there who, who haven't heard of us and will, and will um, go away thinking, wow, that sounds amazing. <laughs> well, I, I so, know uh, that when I learned about the Whiskey Academy, I immediately, and the fact that it's not only for the whiskey ambassadors to learn a little bit more and um, enrich their presentations, etc., to get to in a moment, but also for the lovers of whiskey. So let's wheel back a bit. Um, mm -hmm. When did the Edinburgh Whiskey Academy begin and how did it come together? How did it come to pass? Yeah. Um, so I suppose. Um, the Whiskey Academy um, was set up five, six years ago now, actually, back in um, 2015. So at the time, um, the founder, Kirsty McCarroll, uh, she had been working as a brand ambassador for uh, Glenn Morangie and Ardbeg. I'm sure many of you know, um, I've heard of them, very popular brands. Um, and uh, as, an, as a brand ambassador, Kirsty obviously received great training and amazing training um but it was very much brand focused um or biased towards the brands that she represented which makes perfect sense um they're trying to sell their product at the end of the day um and to to improve brand advocacy so um realizing that there was this lack of solid brand neutral independent um and credible uh, education uh, Kirsty sort of spotted this gap and decided to solve the issue herself. And uh, so she she set up the Edinburgh Whiskey Academy. Um, and, really, with... and really, at this moment, it gives ambassadors and we're all living on Zoom. We're all having to present not a whiskey ambassador's role has changed. He no yes, longer definitely. is turning up at an event, pouring and chatting to people one on one. He's now having to present like you and I are on camera and tell more of a big story. And I think yeah. that's really what Kirsty um, really understood. And I yeah. think that that's really, uh, is that what you're seeing a huge interest in at this time? What is that what it's yeah. developing? I would say so. I mean, initially, um, the first courses that um, were developed in the early sort of years were the in-person um, courses that we run in Edinburgh. Um, but as you say, um, as sort of things have evolved, especially over the past year, but the past sort of two years, we've been developing the online courses that we do, and um, they've become amazingly popular. Um, and uh, it's just expanded our reach so much. We've gone from obviously only being able to 
to teach people in Edinburgh. Um, and, and we did have people travel from all over uh, the world, really, um, to now people being able to do it in their back garden in, <laughs> in, in the United States or in New Zealand or in Japan. And so, so yeah, that reach has, has um, expanded, which is fantastic. And we're improving that online um, sort of presence by bringing our flagship course in an online format as well. Um, and so all I can say really about that is watch this space because we'll hopefully be um, announcing details soon, but we're just putting some finishing touches to, and that is of particular interest um, to some of our um, sort of clients in the industry because it just means they can train up people from around the world without needing to pay for them to come all the way over to Edinburgh. But also the other thing that um, when I had a, a preliminary chat with you all the other mm -hmm. week, is the um, ability for somebody who is traveling to Scotland to build a couple of days into their itinerary and yes. come and attend one of your courses, two day courses, and they're held in a beautiful surroundings. Yeah, definitely. So the, the courses themselves are more than just go and sit in a classroom and, and learn about whiskey. They, they've been designed um, to be a whiskey uh, and, and I suppose, an extension of that to be a Scottish experience in their own right. Um, so like you say, the our flagship courses, the, the Diploma in Single Malt Whiskey, for example, is a two-day course, which is hosted at um, Arniston House, just south of Edinburgh. Now, Arniston House is a vast Georgian mansion. Um, it was uh, designed back in the 1700s. Um, well, as with lots of buildings back then, it obviously had bits added to it all the way up to the 1800s. But it's, a, it's an amazing setting for, um, well, especially for, for people who aren't from the area anyway. Um, but it's but quite just, close to Edinburgh too, so it's yes, easy yes. to get to. Yes, it's about, it's about, I would say, half an hour maybe from the, the centre of Edinburgh. Um, and actually people who are booked onto a course, we, we organise a, a sort of shuttle bus from the, the city centre anyway. So nobody has to worry about getting there. Uh, and that's also a plus because it means you can drink whiskey and not have to worry about dri <laughs> driving back. Um, but no, it is a fantastic place uh, to host courses. And uh, I mean, what's interesting about this house is the family still live there. So it's still, it's still owned. It's still privately owned. Um, and uh, they very kindly obviously allow visitors and allow us to host uh, courses there. And, you know, it includes uh, lunch, it includes breakfast as well. And um and, and it's just, yeah, just it's just an amazing place. It's quite hard to describe, um, but I suppose for, for people who um, maybe are familiar with Downton Abbey, they can maybe get an idea of, of the sort of house it might be. Maybe not quite as grand as, uh, as what's seen on that show, but, um, but equally just as impressive. Well, the, the central hallway, from what I could tell, was a very, very much a Downton Abbey moment. Yes, uh, yes, definitely. So you have a great website which can give people um, a, a way of finding out a little bit more about what's going on, mm -hmm. but um, which we we will put up at the end of this um, this chat with you today. But um, is there an accreditation that comes along with doing the course? Um, yes. So that is because I think that's really important to some people when they're looking to build out their portfolio and also it's good for chefs i mean it's just it's got so many different applications hasn't it yeah exactly uh, and yeah one of the the important things for for kirsty going back to 
um, you know, when in 2015, when she she started up the academy, was, you know, we want to be credible and it, but it also needs to be brand neutral and independent. So you need to have that um, sort of accreditation or approval from some sort of body. Um, so we are um, the Edinburgh Whist Academy is an approved centre by the Scottish Qualifications Authority. Um, so for people outside of the UK, they are the um, in Scotland, the sort of um, government body that sort of oversee education and uh, and the um, sort of certifying of awards, um, and that sort of um, accreditation um, has a well, the, the SQA kind of have two main roles: so accreditation and the awarding of qualifications. So our um, diploma courses, for example, are all accredited individually, and us as a centre are approved as well. Um, which is fantastic because it just gives that um, credibility and assurance to to the learner, um, and we get audited not just as a centre, but our educators will get audited. The content gets audited, the learning objectives get audited, the assessments get audited. Um, so it's quite it's quite a rigorous um, um, process for us, um, and it just means that the the candidates and the students know that they are going away with something that is that is factual and 100% you know accurate and rigorous which is which is very important are you um also going to host some whiskey dinners and different things of that kind um will that be over at um your at the georgia mansion or will that be with you in edinburgh itself what i think what any why are you keeping to the courses um, our, our main offering is the courses. Um, we do, I mean, we do work with uh, with different um, either you know distilleries and brands in the trade to do bespoke events. They all evolve around um, education, obviously. And um, at the moment, um, we've not done a huge amount of public events that haven't been um, education focused. So I think we'll very much obviously want to stick to to what we do best, and that is education. Um, but we're we're always looking at new ways that we can you know, bring the knowledge of whiskey to uh, people and to enthusiasts. So um, there may well be something down the line, which is maybe slightly different. But it's been wonderful to learn, to have this opening conversation with you. I hope that mm -hmm. we will be able to continue. And we really look forward to hearing about the online courses and the next um, in, you know, how to sign up, how to be a part of them and also to share with our members that maybe they should take a two-day course with you when they're next in Scotland. Um, yes, definitely. <laughs> so please, let's keep the conversation going. We look forward yes. to that. Likewise, so do we over here. Very thank excited. You. Thank you. And thank you to Jack Dalton from the Edinburgh Whiskey Academy for joining us. To find out more information about the Edinburgh Whiskey Academy, please visit their website, edinburghwhiskeyacademy.com. And now I'm joined for a roundup with Camilla Hillman. Hello, Jamie. How are you? Hello. Good afternoon. I'm doing well. It's great to see and hear you, and I'm feeling good. How's your day going today, Camilla? Not too bad. I'm really um, love doing this episode. It was so interesting. Um, I mean, Linsmore Abbey Distillery. We have been in touch with at the ASF for the last few years, watching the progress with their Aquavita. Uh, and now to hear that they will be producing the first whiskey in over 500 years is just wonderful. 
Um, it, that was a wonderful piece. I really enjoyed that. And then we caught up with Bonhams to hear about next week's great auction that's coming up on whiskey. And I have to say, I think that the whiskey, uh, the Edinburgh Whiskey Academy, with the courses that they're offering online, uh, but also the short courses in person, not just for the whiskey ambassador, but for just somebody who loves whiskey. I think they make a great um, idea for part of your trip to, to Edinburgh. I, I think that that's going to be very popular. I really enjoyed that. The, the prospect of being able to learn from the Edinburgh Whiskey Academy and to, to take that learning in the wonderful Arniston House would be incredible, look beautiful. And this episode followed on from the one around our last episode, which was all around iWrite. Um, we did a special episode that you um, were hosting around several um, authors. And we have got two more great book festivals coming up in the coming weeks, which I think is fantastic because some are reading. Can yeah. you fill us in? <laughs> well, first of all, we have the Scottish Books Long Weekend, which runs from June the 10th to the 13th. And it's a celebration of Scotland's rich and diverse writing and publishing. And it'll be showcasing thrillers, children's storytelling, as well as politics, publishing, history, Gaelic fiction and more. So there's a really widespread there uh, for the Scottish Books Long Weekend. And it's online this year and you can find out more information at booksfromscotland.com. Booksfromscotland.com. So that's looking great. There's also the, the Boswell Book Festival, which is world famous and it takes place in Ayrshire, uh, normally in person. Uh, this year is a fully online event and the, the thing about Boswell Book Festival is it's the world's only festival of biography and memoir. And there's a great programme this year with Andrew Marr, Bill Patterson, Amanda Owen, Janie Godley, Andrew Cotter, Bill Patterson, Rory Stewart, and more. Whoa. And you know, uh, uh, the Boswell Festival has a lot of historic um, heritage roots, which we need to get to in another episode. I found that all fascinating too. So there's a lot to learn there. But Cameron's here, our sports ambassador, has been keeping us up to date on football and um, what's, well, I should say soccer, um, and other things, but could you give us a roundup on sports? Because we had a boxing wing that was really great this past week. Absolutely. So last weekend, uh, Scottish boxer Josh Taylor uh, became the undisputed light welterweight champion of the world, which is just incredible. Uh, Josh, he comes from Preston Pans, East Lothian in Scotland, just near Edinburgh. He produced an amazing moment as he defeated the USA's Jose Ramirez in Las Vegas. And uh, Josh Taylor is dubbed the, tar the Tartan Tornado. What a name. <laughs> well done to the Tartan Tornado. Oh my goodness. It's been a busy time. I mean, I really am enjoying doing the podcasts, and now they're available also on Zoom, which is great on um, YouTube. But with all of this news that's been happening in such a positive way, it was upsetting to learn that the Edinburgh Military Tattoo will not be taking place this year. 
uh, due to the, the COVID and the difficulties with travel. Uh, so that really took people, took people aback. But then I heard today that the Edinburgh Festival is about to announce their schedule on Tuesday. So that's positive, great news. So little by little, we are getting there. Absolutely. No, I'm so looking forward to that and I'm so excited as well for the Edinburgh Festival. And I'm just delighted to hear about the programme. Delighted. I think like all the things that we're doing as well and planning into the, the fall, there is going to be a part that is virtual and a part that is in person. But it will take, it's gradual and we need to be careful and just make sure that everything is, is happening in the best way possible. So, Jamie, take care. Have a great Memorial Weekend. And I will look forward to catching up with you next week. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great weekend as well. And it's lovely to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you. See you soon. Thank you to Camilla Hellman, President of the American Scottish Foundation, for joining me for that Roundup conversation. And thanks to you for joining us for this episode of the Scots and Us podcast. The podcast is available in video format on the American Scottish Foundation Facebook page as well as on our YouTube channel. We're always very happy to hear from our listeners with any comments on the show or if you have any suggestions for topics or areas you think we should be looking at, please do get in touch. You can email us at americanscottishfoundation at gmail.com. To keep up to date with all things ASF, please see our website at americanscottishfoundation.org or see our social media platforms on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and we're now also on LinkedIn. However you choose to get in contact, we're always very happy to hear from you. On the next episode of the Scots Nuz podcast, we'll be focusing on some brilliant literature events in Scotland, the Boswell Book Festival and the Scottish Books Long Weekend. Scotland is a real treasure trove of brilliance and culture and it's always such a pleasure to explore and share with our audience, members and friends of the American Scottish Foundation. I hope you can join us for that. Until then, take care and see you soon.